For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Today, I talk with Kareem Weaver, an award-winning teacher and administrator and founder of Fulcrum. He has been passionate about helping all students learn to read for years, and his passion places him in the center of some very interesting and important work. This episode is filled with wisdom and exhortation, all wrapped in the warmth of Kareem's personality. Just a caution, it's a bit longer than our typical episodes, and once you start listening, you won't want to stop. I'm going to have this one on repeat, and I think you will too. Enjoy. Well, hello, Kareem. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Glad to be here. We're really excited to dig in a little bit. And um, as you know, before we start digging into your passion work, we would love if you would tell our listeners just a little bit about how you ended up doing this work, how you became Mm -hmm. passionate about this science of reading space. Well, you know, that seems like a very simple question, but it's it's not (laughs) for me. (laughs) Uh, you, You know, so I've always wanted to be an educator. I wanted to be a teacher from an early age. And one of my heroes was a woman named Marva Collins. Mm. Um, she's one of the greatest educators this country's ever known. She did great work um, in some of the cities in the Northeast for years, in Philadelphia and Chicago and places like that. And I studied her. And it wasn't really labeled the science of reading. It was, it was just more about how do you get kids to read? How do you get kids to you know, maximize their potential around literacy? And as I became a teacher myself and looked around and realized that the things she was advocating for were really foreign to what was happening in the school building, I said, oh, wait a second. I, I, wait, let, me, let me go back to my frame of reference here and figure out how to apply those lessons to what I'm seeing every day. And mm-hmm. it's just a matter of me wanting to get the greatest number of kids reading possible. It's just that simple. I mean, you call it the science of reading, but I've heard you know, lots of different phrases and evidence-based practices and this and that, but it's just, how do we get kids reading? And I tend to look at what works and where I taught and led in schools, it was definitely um, something that was in short supply. We didn't know how to reach the kids. So I just used the frame of reference that I had, which was Marva Collins and the research that backed the things that she was doing. Hmm. So do you feel like, um, you know, lots of people talk about including myself, I went through my undergraduate program in education and I actually really never learned 
how, how kids learned how to read. Is, I, I, was that your I, experience? I think, I think many people reflect on our years in, in um, grad school, getting our teacher certificate. And we think, man, I should get a refund. I should get at least a partial rebate. I, you know, and, and forget about the science of reading. You know, we learned, I, I think, what's your philosophy of education was the big paper. Oh yeah, I'm like, I'm a, yeah. I'm a brand new teacher. What do I? I don't have a philosophy. <laughs> You're asking me. You're supposed to be. Uh, and and so the question is, you know, what are they missing out on? And teachers now oftentimes go to graduate school and then have to turn around when they get to the K twelve environment and pay for things that they should have gotten in their undergrad. So that was definitely my. I mean, in their graduate school program, that was definitely my experience. And you can forget about you know phonics and this. I never heard the term dyslexia. I never heard of phonemic awareness. Mm-hmm. I could tell you a five-step lesson plan, and yeah. I can give you a philosophy of this and that. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of reading and the mastery of some of these things, it just wasn't there for me. And I would, and and through my work with the NAACP and Fulcrum, like I realize now that I was not alone. And and your experience reflects that as well. A lot of educators have gone through their programs and just didn't get what they needed. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other topic that's to a whole cover topic for right sure, there. for sure. Um, but my experience the same, and the only reason I knew something about dyslexia is because I went into education because my son was diagnosed with dyslexia, hmm. and the, his school didn't couldn't support him or didn't know anything about him. So, um, so how yes, old was I mean, your how old was your son when he found out that he had dyslexia? You, I bet you could guess because it's one of the common grades, grade three, grade three. So yep. now let, let me let me tell you. So th- so this is another thing we could talk about because dyslexia is real. Yeah. And it's a neurological processing difference um, that really has to do with, with, with how you process phonology um, and and how you're hearing things and processing information. But it varies in terms of when it's identified. My daughter was just diagnosed with dyslexia. She's 16. Wow. And you find that most African-American children, um, if they're just diagnosed at all, it's later because the thinking is, well, just give them more time. They'll be all right. And there really isn't a difference between the expectation oftentimes and how they show up academically. So they think the kids are dumb. They just think they're dumb. Or they say, you know, fill in the rationale out the rationalization, but it happens all the time. Give them more time. And if you're a girl, it's, well, she's so nice. She's a sweetheart. Everybody loves her. She's going to be fine. No, no, actually, my my, yes, I think she will be fine if we can get these things lined up. So dyslexia was one of the things that graduate school should be emphasizing and, and helping teachers or preparing teachers to identify and then address it in their classroom because you got anywhere from 15 to 20% of kids who wrestle with that. And yeah. yet our prisons are filled up about 48 to 50% of the people who are incarcerated are dyslexic. 80% are functionally illiterate, but 40 to 50% are dyslexic. And we in education really haven't stepped up to address that, but it starts with the universities, making sure that people have the information and the training they need to address those needs as they arise. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And it breaks my heart because I talk with educators across the country who say we aren't even allowed to say the word dyslexia in our school building. That's exactly right. Because if you are, first of all, if you say something about it, 
then you have to deal with it. That's right. So, you know, it's, it's better almost to just be quiet because it takes four times as much to teach a kid in special ed than it does in general ed. So there's budgetary considerations as well. And further, if you mention it, like, what if we don't know what to do? There's there's just a general lack of understanding about what to do. In California, there is a bill that was that was passed and approved a few years ago called AB 1369, which mandated phonological processing as part of the um, evaluation process uh, mm-hmm. for special ed. So if you're going to test kids for special ed, you can't just say, you know, the behavior or this or that. You got to actually make sure you're screening for this as well. But in terms of implementation, it's rarely done. It mm-hmm. takes it takes a lot of courage for school systems to step back and say, we may not know how to deal with this yet, but we recognize it's an issue and we want to make sure we're identifying kids. It takes an act of courage because of the budget considerations and because their position oftentimes um, rests upon their perceived level of expertise. And if you don't know what to do, they're afraid it may undermine their credibility. So oftentimes it's just a hands-off thing. Well, we just don't talk about that. I, oh, well, mm. I, yeah, I have other things to say, but maybe we'll move on from there. Okay. But that's right. such a such a frustrating process for sure. Um, I mean, you you mentioned it like when you were trying to figure out what does it take to get kids to read, and people call it science of reading or evidence based practices, lots of different things. Mm-hmm. But specifically, this term science of reading, it's really become a buzzword. Some people. You know, Maria Murray, the Reading League, right? Like mm-hmm. we've talked with people that are really concerned that this is going to become so ubiquitous. People are slapping science of reading on all the products and services Absolutely. they're trying to offer. It's going to lose its meaning. So if I said this, and our podcast is named Science of Reading, so like mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> just going to highlight that, right? <laughs> we want to be part of the solution, not part of the right. problem. But if if we say science of reading, what does that term really mean to you? It means going step by step, being explicit, systematic and direct in how we teach reading and making sure we don't skip things. It means that we're putting in the components that we need to have to make sure the kids um, brains are processing the information away, um, you know, in a way that we recognize. And if they're processing it a different way, that we're able to support them um, with their needs as well. The science just says. There's some things you have to do and you have to do them consistently. And according to the research consensus, about a third of the kids may not even need that. Like you can, you know, how people say, well, there's no one way to teach reading. They're right. There's lots of different ways to teach reading, but that's not the issue. The issue is how do we get that 60% to 66% of students who have to have things that are done step by step, explicitly, systematically and directly across all those what we call the pillars of of early reading. But specifically around the science reading, we're talking about oral language development. We're talking about writing. We're talking about phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, comprehension, vocabulary. And we're talking about doing in a systematic and explicit and direct way. Now, there are some cultural implications to that. There are curricular implications to that. There are economic implications. There's time issues. There's preparation issues. There's a lot that goes with it. But if you have the materials you need, the training you need, the formative assessment and the training on how to analyze the results so that you can inform your practice, 
and 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 that you have the um, collegial atmosphere on your faculty and the leadership that you need. It can be done. So when I think of science of reading, it's just, it, you know, to uncomplicate it, we should just say, look, there are some things that kids need that all kids will benefit from, but some mm-hmm. have to have. Yeah. Have to have. I mean, you can look at those MRI studies um, where they took kindergartners and, and did MRIs of the scan their brain and found that there's certain parts of the brain that are actually receiving more oxygen. You, you actually see the MRI that kind of light up mm-hmm. um, when certain things happen. Mm-hmm. Right? When kids are able to attach sounds to symbols and they can begin to crack the code, their brain literally lights up in certain areas. So when we talk about the science of reading, we're saying, look, we need to push kids into the fray. We need their brains fully activated. We need them to get all the different components and to get them consistently, not just opportunistically. So that's what I that's what I mean when I refer to the science of reading. And and frankly, if I'm talking with a group of parents or even a group of educators, I just say, look, let's do what gets the most number of kids to read. That's it. You can call it yeah. whatever you want to. But how can we get the greatest number of kids reading possible? Yeah. I love that because I was just reviewing with um uh, some folks in New Mexico, let's look at the NAEP data, the fourth grade mm. NAEP data. Mm-hmm. It's like an elephant in the room now, right? Like everybody knows how horrible it is. And we've seen it over and over. I can't tell you like probably every presentation I've seen on early literacy, we pop up the NAEP data, either mm-hmm. for the entire country or state specific. And just exactly what you said, right? It shows that two thirds of our kids are below proficiency mm-hmm. in in fourth grade. And so does that mean what we're doing is working in schools? I kind of think that means what we're doing in schools is not working. So we should be adjusting our practices in line with what the evidence shows works uh, and taking the adult responsibility. Yeah. Well, that's true. I agree with you. And... Um, in our country, we politicize everything, everything, every every law, every initiative, everything is politicized. It's either red or it's blue. It's this or it's right or it's left or whatever. That is death to education. Mm. The, the politics behind reading instruction cannot cannot get thrown into that mix like everything else. We, we just we have to be stronger than that. And we, we can argue about everything else. Fine. But on reading and the fact that we want the greatest number of kids to read as possible. And we'll do what it takes to make that. Like, that should be bipartisan or what, by direction, whatever you want to say. That can't be the blocker. Unfortunately, um, you know, old habits die hard. And it's a lot easier to argue than it is to solve problems. It's a lot easier, especially when it's a little bit um, embarrassing. It's it's. It, it's it's it doesn't feel good. This whole thing doesn't feel good, and so it's it's a lot easier to get caught up in what a former superintendent once told me. He called it the weapons of mass distraction, and uh. and I agree with him on that. That it, we we can distract ourselves with any, we can argue about any and everything, and this machine will keep on going, but it's going to churn our kids out. But here's the reality. It's not a black-white issue. We can't ghettofy the uh, science of reading and make it something for those kids. 
We can't we can't make this a class issue to say, oh, these the poor kids or the I got news for you. This affects everybody. You go to Palo Alto, which is one of the richest, wealthiest per capita uh, districts in the country with Palo Alto and Beverly Hills. They screened for dyslexia and found that they had 25 percent of their kids that promised for dyslexia. Twenty five percent. And as I talked to a board member out there, he's like, yeah, well. There's also an army of, of soccer moms who are paying top dollar for tutors in the area to get the basics of literacy instruction. And so the data hides that. Yeah. So what we're doing works for about a third of kids. But that other two thirds, it's everybody. We're all in the pot together and we're going to have to fight our tribal instincts and say this is an all of us issue and in order to save our kids and to get them competitive uh, in the information age, they have to be able to access information. And so we've got to focus on literacy. Hmm. Very nicely said. We could almost end the episode uh, just right there. <laughs> it was very, very passionate plea um, and 100% agree with you. Um, it sort of feels like, is this is this the reason for this this little organization you have called Fulcrum, the full and complete reading is a universal mandate. Tell us a little bit about that. You mentioned it earlier. I spent a lot of time on the website and for our listeners, we'll link you in the show notes to this, to this site, but tell us a little bit about the the mission and the work of Fulcrum. So Fulcrum. So I I left a job that um, was a great job. I was making a lot of money. Uh, the, the workload compared to what I had been doing, you know, as an educator in, in central office. And then as a, as a teacher, a principal, central, it was like night and day, but I felt terrible. I felt terrible because, you know, I'm commissioned to be in this fight. I've known it since I was you know, a teenager. Hmm. And at some point in time, uh, oh, my father passed away. That was another thing. My father passed away and I realized time isn't guaranteed. You got to do what, what what you're called here to do, period. You don't know what, what tomorrow's going to bring. And so I stepped away for a couple of years and thought about what what do we need to do? Um, what's the most important thing here? And I came up with two things. One is the transition between um, high school and college. Like that is a period that our kids just don't transition very well. Mm-hmm. And our graduation rates, six year graduation rates show that. But the second thing and probably the most important thing was literacy, was reading. And so in my work with the NAACP, both uh, locally in Oakland and in statewide with California, we discussed making this a priority. You know, we, we wrestled with civil rights cases and we helped districts and this and that. And we challenged when we need to challenge. But at the end of the day, after we did our root cause analysis, we found that most of the issues were related to reading. And so we had an initiative. We started it. We organized a grassroots campaign and we did all these things. But I soon came to realize that the NAACP, for all its um, wonderful attributes, it it's an all volunteer organization. And so I said, I better do this on my own. And so, so someone has to work on this stuff all the time. And so I decided to do just that. And I spent the next couple of years meeting with universities, uh, building coalition, meeting with districts, uh, working with publishers, all this stuff, interviewing teachers. And when I was 
down to my last two copies of the reading ladder from Nancy Young in a red folder. I went out to breakfast with a friend of mine, uh, Liza Finkelstein, who was the, um, she worked with me when I was executive director of New Leaders for New Schools in the Western Region. And she said, Kareem, what you're doing has to keep going. And I, you don't realize this, but this is actually the thing that you should be doing full time um, instead of doing it as an aside thing. And so I'm going to help you and we're going to actually turn this into a nonprofit and we're going to do whatever we can to make this our work. I said, OK, my wife was like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Um, and so we decided to create a nonprofit. And taking the, the the leadership and the direction from the NAACP with their campaign, we say, you know what, that's a great campaign, and we're going to put feet on it. Hmm. We're wow. going to make this our 24-7, 365, and we're going to sit and meet with everyone we need to. And so when we founded Fulcrum, we had a five-prong strategy. We said we're going to meet with universities and try to and try to influence them to get them to focus on the science of reading and getting them to support teachers and getting to master. Mm. We're going to work with parents to organize and mobilize parents so that they can advocate for best practices. We're going to work with K-12 systems, their curriculum adoptions, um, helping them understand and unpack the issues. Uh, we're going to work with teachers specifically and make sure that they get the support and training they need. And then we're also going to have a media campaign to get the word out, which is partly what I'm doing right now. Just get the word out to let people know what's going on and why the babies are struggling and what the solutions are. And if we do all that and work hard at it, we're actually going to make a difference. We're going to get our babies reading. And so that's how Fulcrum was born. We still connect with the NAACP. We still, you know, listen to them and work with them, what have you. But it's its own thing now. And it's really about uh, putting systems and districts and teachers and parents and grassroots organizations in the best possible position to serve, to serve children. Tell me a little bit about that acronym, Fulcrum. Oh, so Fulcrum, well, it used to be FCLN, which was full and complete literacy now. That's what I came up with. And okay. I thought that was just the bee's knees. I thought that was it. <laughs> it was like urgent, full and complete literacy now. But my partner, Liza, she was like, oh, no, uh -uh. what is Fuckland? <laughs> you can't pronounce that. She said, no, 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 no. She said, we're going to call this thing Fulcrum. And it means full and complete reading is a universal mandate. And you said with that, the symbolism that comes behind that, people will begin to understand that literacy is the thing that our society is teetering on. This is the information age. And this is this is what it rests on. The balance of the, we have to get this right to be in balance as a society. And Fulcrum is a leverage point. She said, trust me, Kareem, just, just, just trust me. This is better. I, I appreciate the FCLN attempt, but no good. Let's move on. <laughs> so that's what, that's what Fulcrum stands for. In other words, literacy first. It's a universal mandate. We, we gotta have, this is not something that, there's a lot of things we can compromise on. Literacy isn't one of them. I often tell people if we were in the stone age, we'd be advocating that all kids have access to stone, right? But this <laughs> yeah. is the information age. They yeah. got to be able to read and get the information or else they're, they're outside of society from the very beginning. So that's what Fulcrum stands for and what it's trying to convey. 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to give my plus one to changing it to fulcrum because I think the symbolism <laughs> for, for that, I can actually visualize something. So. Oh, gosh, she was right. She was right. <laughs> so oh, I'm God. glad you trusted her. Well, <laughs> you know, the other thing is, the other thing is, is that when we think about literacy, we, we often think about uh, well, reading is important, reading and reading comprehension. But there's more to it than that. Yep. Writing matters. Yep. Um, there, are, there are other oral language development matters. Building knowledge matters. And, you know, I'm going to bring in a, a, a friend of mine. So I also do work in the prison system and we engage with people who are incarcerated um, and who. You know, it's amazing. That's one of the most um, enjoyable things I get to do. It's heartbreaking, but it's also enjoyable. There's a young brother I know. His name is Curtis Carroll. He's in California. He's in Pelican Bay right now. And Curtis teaches financial literacy in prison. Hmm. And and I will lift up his work and say he would say that literacy also has to do with our ability um, to handle our finances and to hmm. navigate the economics of life as well and the, the ability to set up a business, the ability to, to, to create jobs and do these things. That's also part of literacy. And, but Curtis went to prison. He was completely illiterate. He went to jail for robbery murder at 17 years old. He's been locked up ever since he's like 47 or 48 right now. Um, smart as he wants to be, he regrets it obviously. And, but he, he recognizes now, man, I couldn't read or write when I came in here, just like a lot of the other people. Yeah. And so sometimes in education, we get in our ivory towers and we forget the real impact. Now, as I'm quick to tell him and he's quick to tell others, it doesn't mean that just because you can't read, you start knocking people upside the head. I'm not saying that and I'm not justifying it in any way, shape or form. But what I am saying is when you plant seeds of illiteracy, you have no idea what's going to grow from that. The pain, the uncertainty, the self-doubt, the trauma, you know, the folks over at um, University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, they have a dyslexia center. And I went to visit it, uh, took some teachers and some principals, and they said that um, by third grade, when they get people referred to them, young people, by third grade, they really can't even deal with dyslexia. They have to first help the young people navigate the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. Because when you can't read and, and, and when you question, you know, your very intelligence, which what, is what happens when you have these undiagnosed things, the, the psychological trauma that occurs is staggering, staggering. And so we talk about wanting to have trauma-informed practices and yeah. how to support students' social economic health, not realizing that our ability to, to teach them how to crack the code and become fluent in how they're reading and to begin to understand and comprehend what they're reading, and that, that our ability to do that is the greatest asset they can have in terms of overcoming whatever traumas life throws at them. So, um, hmm. so yeah, that's, that's something that um, we've been able to do, and we're glad to be able to do it to work with people who are incarcerated. In fact, I'm going to say one last thing on that. Uh, there's a group. I haven't really talked much about this. So this is the first time I'm talking about this. Uh, there is a there are a group of individuals who are incarcerated in California who have indicated we'll help however you need us to help. And we've been in conversation for quite a while. And their thing is 
do we need to form a class like a, in a class action to to lift up um, our cases, our situations? Do we need to file a suit? Mm-hmm. You know, Curtis was a student in the Oakland Unified School District. Yeah. He couldn't read or write, ends up in prison. And there are lots of people in prisons all throughout California and all throughout the country who have the exact same scenario. And they're thinking, you know what? You're right. We can't read. Why weren't we taught to read? What were our teachers doing? What were our principals doing? What was the school system doing? Didn't we have the right to learn how to read? Now, there's some states like California that actually have education as part of their constitution. It gets it gets deep real fast, but just know yes, it that does. those conversations are happening too. As wow. people are in jail, incarcerated in, in the federal penitentiary or the state penitentiary system, looking at each other saying, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Hold on a minute. How can they go on about their merry lives and leave us here to handle the aftermath? Yeah, it's my fault that I, you know, uh, 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 stole something or I did this. Or did, yeah, I, I acknowledge that. But what were my economic opportunities and why were my opportunities so different than the person next to me whose school system or school district made sure they got certain foundational skills in literacy? That's not right. Were my civil rights violated? And so that's the question that they're asking and that we at the NAACP are engaging them on. And, I, you know, there's a there's a wave coming. The best thing we could do. Because they, they just want to help right now. They just want to help. Yeah. The best thing we could do is commit that this will never happen again. We'll learn what we have to learn. We'll be vulnerable. We'll take risks and step outside of our comfort zones. School systems will pay teachers to go get the training that they should have gotten in the graduate programs. They will honor their time. We'll only adopt curricula that we can do within the bounds of our teacher's contract. And that it's all inclusive in terms of what they need. And so we don't have 20 different components that we have to navigate and all that. So we'll do that piece. Mm-hmm. That we'll have our assessments in place. That we'll train our leaders a certain way. There are some things that we can do so that we say as a society, never again. We shouldn't be sending our young people to prison just because we set them on that course. You know, I heard a, a person, actually a um, gentleman is running for governor in Arkansas. He, he said... Um, Last night, he said, you know, he used to run track and he said the most important part of running track is when you are in the blocks, when you start off. He said he said that when you first take off, those who know, understand that how you start will determine your course. Now, it doesn't mean you'll win, but you cannot win if you get out the blocks slowly. It just gives you an opportunity to compete later on in the race. Wow. And that's exactly what's going on in education. We've got to make sure our kids get out of the blocks. It's not saying their life's going to be peaches and cream. They got to compete every step of the way, whatever their context is, the situation, yeah. uh, all that. But we got to at least as a society make sure our kids get out the blocks. Nobody should be heading towards a penitentiary because we never even got them started to read when they were K-1-2. It just shouldn't happen in this country. Not when we have the resources we have and when you have people in, this, in our sector who really want to do the right thing. So that's just what I'd offer to your listeners. And we got to make sure our kids got the blocks on time. Mm, that's a powerful, powerful message, Kareem. And Well, that was Dr. Chris Jones. He said that. <laughs> brother Chris Jones is my Morehouse brother, uh, a fellow alum. And I know he's running for governor, but I appreciate his education background. It does make a difference to have people 
in leadership who have education backgrounds. Agree. And not just education backgrounds, special ed backgrounds, people who either have or have people they know and love who have learning differences. Mm-hmm. You put those people in leadership in school systems, things change. But mm-hmm. part of our biggest challenge is the people running our schools are the people who the system worked for them. Right. Right. So why should we change it? It's good. There's lots of different ways to learn. Yeah, sure. For you and the other 33% of, but what about the other two thirds? If you had a, if our superintendents across the country, if our union leads, if our superintendents, if our chief academic officers were dyslexic and they had to navigate that world, for example, what would happen? What kind of curriculum would we adopt? How would our teacher contracts look? How would we structure our programs? Well, it, it, it would be fundamentally different because those folks usually know what it takes right. to get that large group of folks like themselves where they need to be. Hmm. So, yeah, that's so true. And in your work, you do a lot of actually helping folks make shifts or start to make changes towards those evidence-based practices. And we talked a little bit in the pre-call about, about this idea of change management, right? Like helping to make a shift and a change like this doesn't happen overnight, right? It's a commitment. It's a commitment to, to move in a certain direction. Talk a little bit about, you know, your experiences with that change management process. Sure, I, I, I will. But first, I'm going to go back, if you don't mind, to what I said. I don't said, mind at all. What I said first. So the politics of this are tricky. Yep. I'm, I'm an independent. I was I was born and raised in an environment that everybody was a Democrat and I'm an independent. And it's not because it's not because I, you know, have, it's just that I'm about education and whoever is whoever is willing to help. I want to be able to work with. Uh, I don't I, I've worked with Republicans. I've worked with Democrats. I've worked with progressives. I've worked with conservatives. I, I don't care. Our kids can't read. And so I don't care. Red, blue. I, I, I could care less. Our kids can't read. And so I mentioned, I mentioned the person running for a uh, uh, governor. Listen, yeah. his opponents, I, I, I don't care. I will work with, talk to, engage anybody, union leaders, people who are anti this and pro that. I don't care. I just want, and, and I think that's the type of dogged focus we need in education um, because everything can't be politics. I know some people would say that's naive, Kareem, but I just know that it's something that we all can rally around. Yeah. Black, white, Republican, Democrat. This is something that it's our kids. We all want to give kids a start and a chance. And so that's why I kind of take the stance I, I have. But you mentioned, I, I want to make sure I get to your question, though. Your question is, <laughs> change, is management. About change management. So, I mean, because the heart of that, too, is all about people. Like, like right. p- rallying yes. people for what? Yes. A really important person purpose, so, which is so, kids. The change management. So people. okay. so I'm so glad you asked that question. So we often think that solutions lie in a rubric somewhere. But if we just get these boxes checked, if we just get the right curriculum in place, if we if we, uh, you know, we get the right program and the contract Mm -hmm. and 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 that's all fine. That's important. I will say that's necessary, but insufficient. At the end of the day, education is about people. And how can you get people to shift anything? That's a leadership move. There's a book uh, called Change or Die 
Yeah, I know that book. That's old. Yeah. It's that's, old. That's a classic. It, it talks it about how, you know, people when, when faced with life uh, situations, they still couldn't change. Yeah. But one of the things that that book talked about was how there's power in the group and being able to move collectively together. And so change management is the ability to convince people to move when they don't have to and to be willing to suspend belief, even just out of curiosity, to the furtherance of a goal. So how do you get people to do that? How do you get people to actually be open to trying and do something different? There's a whole course of study. When I was a um, executive director at New Leaders, we taught change management. And it was more important to me than anything else, because I don't care what rules you pass, what policies you uh, approve. When a teacher closes that door, they're going to do what they want to do. I got I got news for you. I don't care what your board says. Okay, <laughs> they go. I mean, and, and and you don't want to create an environment where it's like cat and mouse, where you're trying to chase people down to do. The, no, leaders understand that it's not your title on the doorway that makes you a leader. Right? That that does. If, if that's your rationale for making rules and policies, and you already failed, you've got to get people to the point where they're willing to suspend belief and they're willing to try something because they understand it. They connect to it. They see the value of it and they're willing to make the effort. And and that is um, you've got to give them what they need. Change management is about making sure that people can get where they need to go. So that means for some people, you have to make a different case than others. You have to convince them. You have to explain to them why, which means principles, assistant principles, leadership teams, they have to be willing to study themselves. You can't lead something you don't understand yourself. You were just advocating for balanced literacy two years ago. Now, all of a sudden you come around because there's this new wave, this new trendy thing. And you say, now we're going to do this. You don't have the credibility to do that. You can either lie and act like, you know, you understand it, or you can be vulnerable and say, wait a second, when you know better, you do better. I advocated for that because that's what I thought was best. But now I've learned And I want to continue to learn. uh, And I invite you to learn with me. I have realized because of whatever the source of the revelation was that the research consensus actually says this, that the brain science actually says that That there are some schools in Lane, Oklahoma and Seaford, Delaware and here and there. And I'll study the, the Ed Trust podcast. And I found out that there are examples where people are closing the achievement gap, where second language learners are learning just as well as everybody else. Well, the black kids are kicking butt. You want to learn with me? Teachers can respect that. But what they can't respect oftentimes is people who come in with more initiatives, you know, for the new silver bullet. The same people who just told them to do something else two years ago, asking them to commit more of their time, more of their resources, the talent, time and treasure with very little of of the case making being made. So change management is very important. Um, and it really is the heart of leadership. It's not a rubric. It's trying to convince people um, and support people to getting where they need to go. I, I'll give you a brief, uh, very brief little um, anecdote here. I, I was a, princ- a principal years ago and I had this math initiative. I had the bright idea that I'm going to get all of our all of our kids in K-5, well, grades three through five to memorize their multiplication facts. Right. That was my thing, because 
Algebra is a dropout class. You got to know pre-algebra to do that. And you got to know fractions to do that. And fractions, you need multiplication. So I figured I'm going to, we're going to make sure we do. And so I, I got a, a, a computer program and it was 10 minutes a day and the kids would learn the math facts. I did it on my own kids. It worked. I read the research. It worked. It was good. So I was like, okay. So I went about and I, I got computer labs. I got computers in every, every classroom, rewired them and everything. Um, I got professional development paid for. Uh, I put the program on every computer. I made sure people knew what to do. I set it all up. Everything was set up. All they had to do was put the kids on the computer 10 minutes a day. They will learn their math facts. They will memorize them. I, I just knew it was, it was. And so we had a professional development. I went in there. I said, OK, everybody, this is what it is. Here's the program. Here's this. We got the professional development and Yada, yada, yada. I did my principal thing. Right. And I figured this is a no brainer. They're just going to love this. And because and it's going to make their job a little bit lighter because now they don't have to do some of that stuff. Well. It came time for Christmas, the, the, the holidays. And when I looked at the data. Only one class had kind of implemented it. Nobody else did. I was furious and the, the kids didn't learn, know the math facts. This is an underperforming school, second language learners, uh, a lot of kids, 98 percent free and reduced lunch. Uh, a lot of teachers had had previous issues. Uh, it, it just this was a turnaround situation. And I loved my staff, but I couldn't understand why. Why it didn't work? Well, as everybody went out for Christmas break, uh, my union rep, uh, my buddy Tom, came up to me, came to my office and sat down. He said, Weaver. And he saw I was distraught, you know, and he was a Navy veteran, Vietnam vet, Navy man. Tom was a straight shooter. He's like, Weaver, you didn't sell it. Said, what do you mean? <laughs> so you didn't sell it. I said, Tom, I did the PD. I got the computers. I did this. I did that. I wired the classrooms. What else could you want? He just looked at me. You didn't sell it. That's all he said. said you got to sell it. And that was tough for me. Because as a black man leading a majority of white staff, mm. I figured I shouldn't have to sell it. These white people, <laughs> these ornery white people, <laughs> why are they making me sell it? I felt I, I was angry and I felt like I'm trying to advocate for these brown babies. And why won't they just do the stuff? They don't even have to just put them on. The, I was furious and I was indignant. And what I realized, the wisdom in what Tom was saying, it was hard to hold at first, which was. I didn't sell it because my ego got in the way. I didn't feel like I should have to sell it. I felt like you all should be doing this because it's good for kids. And here I am as a person of color. I hate that term as a black man telling you this and you still won't do it. How dare you? I became indignant. Well, I had to sit on that for a while and I thought about it, prayed on it, and I realized he was exactly right. And I realized that the, the, the factor holding those kids back from getting what they needed was me. That I had to be humble enough to make the case just like and give them the respect of making the case. I had to meet them where they were. 
they have different beliefs about math. Some of them have, you know, there's all different kinds of ways to teach multiplication facts in math. And I was assuming that they would suspend their belief to do what I wanted them to do because I felt it was best. Well, I, I, I humbled myself and, and during the Christmas break, I, I came up with this PowerPoint presentation. I explained the, 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 the relationship between dropouts and algebra and pre-algebra and fractions and multiplication. I talked about how. Uh, the, the homicide rate in San Francisco the, the, was tied to the illiteracy rate. This was Oakland, but there had been some data that was released from San Francisco. And I, I really put myself out there. I was vulnerable and I was embarrassed. I was, and I named it. I apologized to them, which was even more embarrassing and humiliating and angering. Mm-hmm. But it but the kids needed that from me. They needed that from me. They needed me to put myself in the closet and let a leader come out and keep me in the closet because just me wasn't going to get it done. Some teachers liked me. Some teachers didn't. Yeah. So I couldn't just depend on me. They respected me. They didn't necessarily always like me, but they respected me. So I so a few months later, I'd say by by April, we had 93 percent of kids who had memorized the multiplication facts. Memorized. I had to make the case. And and the realization was that the only thing limiting them, the only reason why it wasn't 100 percent was because I, as a leader, failed them. Hmm. And I offer this to your listeners in terms of reading as well. Principals, superintendents, chief academic officers, you got to make the case. You got to sell it. You have to give them the respect enough to tell them why and not just assume just because it's your position or your title or whatever that, that they're going to just flow with you. No, the life, the leadership doesn't work that way. And if you can't make the case, bring in somebody who can, they'll listen to, right? You have to be honest about that make the case to your union partners, make the case to your principals, make the case to your, to your parents and to your teachers and to every, make the case. And if you can't make the case and you got to question why you're doing it in the first place, you know, and be willing to say we may have gotten it wrong in the past. Ooh. So those are some leadership moves. When we start talking about um, change management that yeah. have to be in place, you cannot depend. You cannot expect teachers to throw away everything they've been taught and suspend belief on a lark. On a, on a wild hare. They yeah. deserve somebody explaining to them what's going on and giving them the opportunity to learn, giving them the opportunity to go see other school sites, to go visit other classrooms, to get good feedback, to study and examine the research. They deserve that opportunity. And if you're not willing to give that to them and you don't have enough standing in your building to just snap your fingers and magically things happen, if that's not you, then maybe you're not the right person for the right role for the right time because they deserve that so that they can full heartedly move forward and embrace the science of reading and try to get the greatest number of kids reading possible. This is, this is hard sustained work that doesn't happen between or over a Christmas break, right? So you gave one little example of how you had to go back to your staff, but like making this shift for what, science of reading actually requires ensuring all of our kids get it. This is a time commitment. It is. And and I would also say on that note, 
I would say that, you know, that story was as a principal. As a teacher, when you don't have the tools you need, you're basically being asked to make bricks without straw. Hmm. As a teacher in East Oakland, uh, 95, 96, I don't even remember what our what our curriculum was. It, it was basically do what you want, when you want, how you want. That's what the curriculum was. And here's a few books you could use, whatever. And I had a, a, a 35 students who couldn't, I'd say 25 of them couldn't read wow. at all. And so what do you do? Do you avert your eyes or do you spend the time necessary to figure it out? At 20 something years old um, and having felt like this was my calling, I, I decided to give the time and it cost me. My ex-wife has told me, you weren't married to me. You were married to those kids. Nobody should have to pay that price. I lost a family behind this. My daughter, she was three years old at the time. She's now Dr. Weaver. And she's a graduate, uh, you know, graduate uh, of uh, a university and grad school, et cetera. And, and she's doing great. But she wasn't raised with her father the way she should have been. And that's a cost that the district can never repay. Never. They owe. And as a father, it hurts my soul to even talk about that. But that's the reality. So we have to be clear about what we're asking teachers to do. You cannot expect them to be a teacher, a curriculum designer, hmm. an assessment creator, Amen. and all the rest. You, you, that, that is, you, you have no, that's not right. I, I'm not talking politics and this is not a pro or anti. I'm just telling you straight up, that's not right. You can't do that to people and expect them to be, you know, sustained in their work and their practice. There's a reason why there's a teacher shortage right now. It's not just about money. People know the money is, is not that great when they take the job. They know there's a contract, a salary contract scale. Now we know that, but what you don't expect, you, you don't expect to have inadequate tools and preparation. You don't expect for the conditions to be right. You don't expect that the materials they're giving you don't work and that you can't make the difference that you intended to make. And now you become cynical and these other things and people burn out. So yeah. you have to be mindful of people's time. And I would say this to all the publishers. I know Squadcast and Amplify. And all, I, I, I would just say this. Publishing materials, curriculum, whether it's tier one, tier two, tier three, whatever. Ought to say this is how much time full implementation takes on average. This is how much time. If you're a seven year veteran teacher, um, and this is this is it. This is how much time, okay, for full implementation. Now the district can then look at that and say, hmm, does that match with our structure? Does that match with our prep time? Does that match with the other curricula that we have for, for history and math mm -hmm, and whatever else? Mm -hmm. Is this a good fit for our system? Are mm -hmm. uh, are our systems aligned? to something like this. And then they can make an informed choice. But what you can't do in good conscience is adopt a curriculum that takes five times the amount of prep that you have contracted and expect full implementation consistently. Because you're then turning your school system into the goodwill or Salvation Army, hoping that people donate their time, talent, and treasure yeah. for the benefit, for, you know, for altruistic reasons, which many teachers do. 
But again, there's a cost to that. Yeah. And teachers know that they're probably going to give more than they're contracted for. And teachers know that, but they just they don't want you to throw it in their face. Just give right. me a re- lie to me. <laughs> Tell me you at least tried to consider my work life balance. And then I can lie to myself in good conscience. <laughs> It's a it's a really good reminder that, you know, our teachers work hard every single day. Nobody can tell me that there's a teacher in the classroom that says, no, I'm here to actually help kids not learn how to read. Right. Right. They're there to help to help kids. And as a former administrator myself, a former district leader myself, I understand that like systems that we can put in place to wrap around and support teachers are so important and we can't just expect our teachers to do the work themselves. That's right. The most precious resource in schools outside of people and children is time. Time. Mm. It's time. And so when people say, I need you to value my time, we have to understand what that's really saying. Do you see me? Do I exist to you? Or am I just a a thing on a chessboard that you're moving around strategically? Yeah. You have to honor people's time because that's really all they have. And when you when you leave the ivory tower world of philosophy and and, and, and and politics and this and that, the real question is, do people in your employ feel like they are able to do the job they are commissioned to do? And time is a big part of that. You know, Chicago uh, has 300 minutes of preparation time a week. Oakland has 100. So fundamentally, those school systems are in different places in terms of what they can adopt and what they can sure. leverage. Yeah. They, yeah. They just, and so that conversation has to be on the table. Yeah. When school systems engage publishers, engage their teachers, they're engaged labor. And like I said, some people say, Weaver, you're just a union Lackey, man, please. I've said things that unions hate. I, I have argued for things in court. I've, I, I tell the truth. I don't care what it is. And right is right and wrong is wrong. You can't expect people because they have families or they have personal lives. Their health matters. And, and the same thing goes for principals. It's a little bit different. When I was a principal, I knew it was time to transition when I found myself in the emergency room with my family around me and I had uh you know, health concerns. I, mm-hmm. I, I knew then maybe it's time to tap. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I need to pass the baton. Yeah. Now, I didn't do it right away, but I knew, okay, this ain't sustainable. Not the way this thing is structured and set up. Mm-hmm. And I can't, and in good conscience, I can't rob my teachers of what they need. They need me to be present in their classrooms and in their, in their practices. They need me to give them quality feedback. They need me to do research. They need me to do all these things. And in good conscience, I can't just get a check. I have to be what this moment requires for me to be, to be effective for teachers and students, or else I'm not the right man for the job. And, and it's the same thing with all educators. We have to wonder what our season is and be and recognize that people are in different seasons in life. Yeah. You know, I would say those empty nesters, you know, that first five or six years, once the kids are gone, man, no, man, when you, when you are empty nester, first five, you feel like you sky high. Well, I could I could <laughs> climb a mountain. I could go, but that's different. That's different than a person who is, um, you know, 33 years old with a, a new baby at home yeah, right. and and struggling through the early pains of, you know, they just got married and they're trying to work it out. And here's this new kid. And what is it? It's a whole different flow. So understand that it's not just about um, 
teachers are, are just like everybody else. We're dynamic beings and you have to lead people where they are, not where you wish they were. Mm-hmm. Engage with your educators directly with their life circumstance and with, you know, I had a, um, I had a teacher who had an ill spouse and it was difficult for that person to really do what we're asking them to do because their focus was, I mean, they had other concerns that they really had to prioritize. Yeah. And we had that conversation. It was a very tough conversation. You know, what do you need from the school system right now? What does the school system need from you right now? And I, as a principal, if I have, you have a class. I looked at that class roster and I was like, Oh, that's a tough class. <laughs> a tough class. Maybe this isn't the year. Maybe this isn't the season for that. Yeah. Maybe we're going to have to work some other things out and, and, and shift some stuff around and, and provide you with extra support. Maybe you shouldn't be in the classroom this year, or maybe there's a different role or maybe a different grade level or whatever it is. Like we have to have very honest conversations with each other without the fear that, Oh my God, I'm about to get fired. Oh my God. They're going to judge me. Oh my God. I'm going to get blamed. There was no blame. And I'll tell you what, that individual to this day, I have a ton of respect for that individual um, and how they handled that sensitive period uh, in their life with their, their, you know, now deceased Mm -hmm. spouse. Um, But one thing we said was, you know, what would they want you to do in this moment? The spouse, what would they want you to do in this moment? And we started our conversation there. Hmm. And we led with grace and love and it was tough. And when help was needed, help was provided. And when we didn't have money to pay for help, then I went in the classroom. It's like we, you got to figure out how to meet people where they are, or it's not the right, right spot and right time for you to be in those, in those positions. Yeah. It's, it's so true. It's a great reminder that like, you know, all the work that needs to be done, it's really people focused. It's it has to be. for people, for students, and it's through and by people. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's the adults that are there for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like you to just maybe, maybe in closing, talk a little bit about this, uh, going back to the science of reading uh, momentum. Wow. That was hard to say. What you're going to say mimosa. uh, Maybe (laughs) we should say mimosa. mimosa. Ah, (laughs) Maybe it's time for one. Um, what, what's something that really excites you about this and what's something that really concerns you? Cause we've had a lot of momentum in the science of reading, but it can also be a little scary. Any, anything you can think of that's super exciting about it or things that concern you? Yeah. Um, let's, let's go with the exciting part first. That's exciting great. Part first. Um, what excites me about it is that parents are becoming more involved and more aware that teachers are beginning to loosen the grip of some cultural icons that have really held sway in the field. They're beginning to challenge assumptions um, and move away from sacred cows and say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I've been using this program for six, seven years and it's not working so well. It's not working the way I wanted to work. You mean there's something else out there? So I guess that's my way of saying people are beginning to get curious. Hmm. And that's so important. Where there's no mm-hmm. curiosity, we settle. Right. But I'm seeing people saying, well, show me. Well, where does it work? Well, when did that happen? Well, how much did that cost? Well, who did that? 
can I do that? Like we're starting to have those real conversations because of the curiosity, the intellectual curiosity and the professional curiosity. And that is very, very encouraging to me. Mm -hmm. I also am so grateful that parents, you know, unfortunately COVID um, claimed a lot of lives and had a devastating, has had a devastating impact on, on our, our country. But the flip side of that is people got to see how reading was taught. Right. They, they got to see kids in the, in the living room. What are they doing over there? What is that? Yeah. And in many cases, some parents were surprised. Mm-hmm. And they were surprised, not just at what was being taught, but how, how their children were responding to what was being taught. And it made them curious. It made them question. It made them wonder. And that's a good place to be. Yeah. So when you have parents and teachers both curious, then that means that if people are acting with positive intent, um, that you'll eventually get to where you need to go. You got to keep asking the right questions and you have to seek things out. So that's very, very encouraging to me. It's also encouraging that dyslexia is at the forefront of things. Yeah. I, I call it a dyslexic um, community of the kids who are dyslexic as the canaries in the coal mine. I mean, if, if, if if they get what they need, everybody's going to get what they need. You know, that those are the kids who they need it in a structured way, explicit, systematic, direct, they need all the, all the, all the elements of the science of reading and they need some diagnostic support and they may need it again. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and so, but if they're getting that, then guess what? This other kid over here who can learn in any possible way is going to be just fine. In fact, that kid will be advantaged because now their vocabulary will be stronger They'll be learning Latin and Greek roots. There'll be, mm. there'll, there'll be some things that they get that they likely wouldn't have gotten with a more opportunistic style of teaching. So yeah. that's encouraging. In addition to legislation cropping up all around the country for dyslexia screening and support, um, professional development that's being offered with some of these one-time COVID relief funds. Mm-hmm. It really is encouraging. And then there's some films that are coming out um, about reading. I saw four or five of them. and I'm in a couple of them. Uh, but there are about four or five of them that are coming out that I think all of that together will create some cultural momentum um, that can help us move some of the soft skills and hopefully win hearts and minds um, the way we need to. So that's, that's on the great. positive and that's very encouraging. Yeah, that's great. On the flip side, <laughs> on the flip side. Oh, there's always um, a flip side. Yeah, I know. On the flip side, Old habits die hard and education, just like seemingly every other sector in society, gets polarized so quickly. Yeah. And I'm deeply concerned that the science of reading or whatever we want to call it uh, will become politicized and polarized and the kids will lose like that. This cannot be a conservative or a liberal thing. This has got to be about our kids. Um, it's really a heart check. You know, one of those things like when you're sick, your your parents give you the thermometer to see what the temperature is. This is one of those things where our heart is getting a thermometer. Do we love our kids? Do, do I see my neighbor's child as valuable? Um, because. Unfortunately, in the past, it hasn't always been so readily apparent. But this is one of those things that, you know, like I said, I've had white soccer moms, 
and 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 black folks in the same meeting. And I'm like, you know what? You guys are in the same boat right now. You may not be in a boat, same boat on a lot of stuff, but guess what? For this right here, you're in the mm-hmm. same boat. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And I've I've told I've told uh professors, I've told parents, I've told teachers, I said this may be one of the first times I said those who are who are um um different social economic levels, you're going to feel what it's like to be somebody who's a different color or they're a different economic level or you, because your kids are going through the same stuff. Mm. Now, maybe, maybe the repercussions of not being taught to read will be different depending on your station in life. True. But the desperation that you feel as a mom, when your child is, let's say dyslexic and they can't read and nobody's got answers and your kids following further and further behind and you don't know what to do. And they're shining you on and they're telling you, give them more time. And they're going to be, that's the exact same feeling that a lot of these African-American parents feel when they send their kids to school every day. Yeah. And so there is a common sense of desperation that actually gives me hope Hmm. because we can relate to each other in a new way with fresh eyes. I didn't know you were going through that. I, I respect your desperation. I get it. And in many ways, we can bond over that. I have a 16 year old daughter who's dyslexic, just found out the other day. Well, a little while ago, a couple months ago, 16 years old. And I feel so guilty. I feel terrible. And I taught her how to read when she went to school, uh, before she went to school. She knew how to read. Mm -hmm. She actually, because of the things she was trying to learn and memorize and internalize from the school system, she actually went backwards. And so I can empathize with somebody else of a different social economic status or a different class or a different political leaning. I can I can empathize when they say, you know what, my child is fifth grade and they can't read, or my son is dyslexic and I'm struggling, or we're paying for private tutoring or this or that. I, I, I get you. Let's work together. Let's push together. Let's pull together. That gives me hope. It gives me hope that. Um, we actually can have something with a commonality of man comes to the forefront that our common cause, because we don't get this right. Nothing else really matters. You got to get literacy, right? That gives me, that gives me hope, but I'm concerned. We politicize everything. We go in our tribal corners um, and people want to bash this group or that group or unions that we don't have time for that. That's just a distraction. You got to get over those old, tribal instincts and say, let's just do what's best for kids and give teachers the equipment, the materials, the time, um, et cetera, that they need so that they can actually serve our babies and get the greatest number of kids reading. That's possible. And that was a long winded answer, but that, those are some of the things that give me hope and give me pause. Yeah. I think that's amazing wise words to use this moment in time to come together to solve a common problem, something we can all rally around. We all want our kids to be the most successful that they can be. So we, I really appreciate your time today. There's so much wisdom um, in, in what you just shared with us. It's clear that this work is really your passion and, uh, and your calling. And we're glad that you landed in this space Hmm. uh, for the kids of this country. Thank you, Susan. It means a lot to me. And the last thing I say is this, which is whatever wisdom I may have acquired was hard fought and came at a very high price. And I wish that upon no one. 
I, I don't want to develop and cultivate an army of teachers and principals that go out there and compromise their health and jeopardize mm-hmm. their families and, and spend all their money on. I, I, that's not what I want because that's not sustainable. And in many ways, to me, that is mm-hmm. um, it's pernicious. It's not okay. Especially when there are other options and other alternatives to that, like effective leadership, like quality. You can go on the American Federation of Teachers website and look up uh, elements of an effective literacy program or reading program. And they list the five things right there. Yep. My wish is that regular people can do these jobs and fill these roles and our kids will get what they need because the system is set up to do that. That's my, we don't need Superman or Superwoman. What we need is systems that work for kids and that they work for adults so they can serve the kids. That's what I, that's what I hope for with all of this. So, sorry, I just want to throw it in there because. No, I appreciate it. Um, and you're definitely doing that work to help us uh, figure these systems out and get the systems in place, but it's a good reminder um, for sure. And thank you again, Kareem, for our listeners. We'll link you in the show notes to the things that, that uh, Kareem has mentioned. Um, and we, we, we wish you the best, and I'm sure we'll talk to you very soon, Kareem. Uh, I look forward to it. And to you listeners out there, check out Marva Collins. It may be worth your time. There Great you educator. go. Great <laughs> educator. All right. <laughs> Take thank care. you. Sam. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening, and keep your feedback coming. Want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing to your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. And visit Amplify.com to check out our brand new resource site, offering all the tools and tips you need to continue on your science of reading journey. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch. Let's get our kids to love reading.